1: Hello, everybody. This is uh, Daniel Doughty, your co-host for the Cannonball Presents, our special series, Space is the Place. That was probably the most awkward way I could introduce all of that. I, uh, <laughs> you, you, might, <laughs> you, you might be wondering how we are coming out with another episode so hot on the heels of our first one. And I would caution you first, do not get used to it. Um, this is kind of a special uh, shakedown cruise. We're doing one of the first couple of eps in the Space of the Place series uh, that we're doing here on the Cannonball. Um, as as uh, our listeners will know, the idea is that uh, I, my usual co-host, Claude Myron-Goozer, will be alternating uh, with me on his own side project where they're looking at the contemporary canon. And uh, I, myself, and my other usual co-host, Gigi, will be looking at uh, sort of the science fiction genre history on uh, Space of the Place here. But this is a this is a little extra bit. This is basically episode 1.5 because I realized after Gigi and I had our episode on Jules Verne and from earth to the moon in the can, I realized we had gotten so excited about talking about a much, much loopier and crazier novel than either of us had anticipated that we hadn't really set the table very much for what we want this project to do and sort of give all y'all kind of a grounding in the genre history of science fiction itself. And that turned out to be the perfect excuse for me to reach out to one of my favorite podcasters in the game uh, to see if he wanted to come on and chat about that stuff with me. And much to my surprise, uh, he accepted. So everybody, please say hello to Pete Johansson of Podside Picnic. Pete, how are you doing today?
2: Great. And I, I have to say, I wouldn't miss it for the world. I was flattered to be invited. This is going to be fun. (laughs)
1: Thanks, man. Um, But yeah, all of our listeners, please check out Podside Picnic. It is easily my favorite science fiction podcast going. Um, uh, And every episode, uh, Pete and his co-host Connor will take a look at a a piece of science fiction literature. They'll do movies and TV. Um, And it's easily some of the smartest conversations you'll ever hear about uh, science fiction and kind of just the genre in general and just really digging into uh some fascinating works um i think probably my favorite one so far is you guys covered a john varley novel uh Ofiyuki hotline that yes. i and i had never read john varley before um i'd seen him on you know i would sort of seen him around but i'd never read him before and listening to y'all's episode about it i instantly like the next time i was at the used bookstore and i saw a copy of it i snapped it up immediately <laughs> because like the way you guys were talking about it, it sounded fascinating so, uh, if you if, if you all out there in radio land give Podside Picnic a try, I guarantee you you're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of moments like that. So, thanks a lot for coming on, Pete. Oh, absolutely. Really
2: glad to be here. It's uh, it's nice because, like, Connor wants to talk about the nuts and bolts of criticism and how it all fits together, mm-hmm. not so much the history. And when somebody says, hey, do you want to talk about the history? It's like, yes. Yes, I do.
1: <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, yeah. So I guess a good way to start out with. Um, so in my kind of researching for the series and putting it all together, I've been leaning pretty heavily on. Uh, Brian Aldous's classic genre history, Billion Year Spree, which was first published in 1974, I want to say. It was early mid 70s. And uh, in it, he has a definition of science fiction that I think is pretty good. And so I'll just read this out here. Um, and then, um, it, it just as with anything, especially with science fiction, like any kind of literary definition is going to be slippery. Science fiction, doubly so. But I think this really does hit on something. He defines it as science fiction is the search for a definition of humankind and their status in the universe, which will stand in our advanced but confused state of knowledge, parenthetically science, and is characteristically cast in the Gothic or post-Gothic mode. And when I was when I read that, it really struck me like a bell the, uh, because on the cannonball, of course, uh, to be spooky for Halloween – we did an episode on the genre history of the Gothic, where uh, Claude really taught me a lot <laughs> about um, about that kind of broad uh, aesthetic. And it really clicked into place how science fiction fits in the Gothic mode, because the at the outset of the Gothic um, genre, the sort of the bit in each of these novels was that there would be like – creepy things happening in a creepy castle or whatever. And then at the end, it would all be explained via some kind of rational means. Like it was just someone playing tricks or like what have you. It was very like enlightenment era, dispelling the demons kind of thing. And it really made sense because so much science fiction that you read, I used to sort of think of it like a mystery novel, right? Like there would be a, a mysterious or unknown phenomenon is sort of plonked into the laps of the uh, of the characters, and then by the end of the novel, it has been explained or you know or otherwise sort of teased out, and sort of the, that reveal is one of the big sort of I think structural elements to science fiction. And I had no idea that that's actually just the gothic, which <laughs> so that was pretty that was pretty interesting. And all this really runs with that because he places the origin of science fiction at Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and. I think that holds up. I don't know. How, how do you feel about
2: that? I I think it's a defensible choice. It's um it, w- have you listened to one of the episodes where I go nuts and start talking about platypuses? I don't I don't think okay. I have. I must have missed those. <laughs> well, he, here's the idea. Like Ever since the platypus has been discovered, people have said, how is it possible that we can have this animal that doesn't follow the rules of bird or mammal? It's furry, mm-hmm. but it it lays eggs. Well, the platypus doesn't care. The platypus is just being a platypus. And we showed up <laughs> later. Right. And, and so, like, I, I think that pointing at frankenstein is probably the best choice but it is one thing we do need to bear in mind is like when mary shelley wrote that she wasn't like well i'm i'm doing the first science fiction novel like that wasn't <laughs> right
1: <laughs> yeah exactly she was just trying to uh she was just trying to get away from uh lord byron's uh unceasing advances really yeah um, exactly Get him <laughs> <these minutes alone. laughs> right right but um yeah, I, I I think you're right. Like there's you know, and of course it gets into like all the kinds of like, is you know, how how much does this, the history of like fantastical literature or or like epic tie into the science fiction? Like you know, is Gilgamesh science fiction because he's questing after a an immortality drug? You know, he, he's he's questing for a pharmacological. Uh, uh, item and in the in the meantime is battling alien looking monsters or whatever, and I and I think you're right that it kind of it misses the point almost to try to find some point of origin. Like it's clear it's clear that a an aesthetic gelled in the I think in the context of the industrial revolution. Um, yeah, a lot of threads came together to end up with this thing that we call science fiction. And I, I really do feel like it is highly associated with industrialism, industrialization. And I haven't done enough reading of history or criticism to uh, go beyond that very broad gut feeling. <laughs> but but it is, it is clear that like over the course of the 19th century, which is of course the, that time of industrializing and massive expansion in scientific knowledge in, uh, in Western Europe and, and in um, North America, the kind of what we might call the, uh, the North Atlantic uh, sphere That that's how that's where you get the science Fiction developing so you have figures like Mary Shelley uh, Edgar Allan Poe Is also kind of pointing to as a A prefiguring Writer in science fiction And that one's I guess a little more I, I don't know I, I don't know how I feel About placing Poe in science fiction well, we'll get a little bit a little bit later With some of the pulp era we'll see kind of How he fits in with that but yeah, oh, like, sorry, go ahead what, you...
2: Wasn't it like a balloon to the Moon kind of thing
1: Right. He wrote a couple, th- th- his, his placement in the science fiction continuity rests on a couple of sort of fantastic travel narratives that okay. were written as, and this was, a, this was an actual genre at the time he was writing in the 1830s and 40s, of the, the hoax newspaper report. Um, <laughs> like the idea was that you would write a, you know, some sort of fantastical journey or whatever in the style of straight reporting and the newspaper would print it and we would all grin and wink at each other. Um, oh, okay. this, is, this has I of course been, an, and this has of course been an absolute boon to uh, crank pseudoscientists who will like another popular genre of that was uh, discoveries of giant remains was another popular like hoax newspaper article. So like people who are trying to prove the existence of the Nephilim will like bring up like the you know the whatever Baltimore Gazette reporting that you know farmer Dinkum found giant bones in his field. When at the time everyone knew that it was a gag. Um, but Poe wrote a couple of those. He wrote, yeah, he wrote one about like a balloon voyage. He wrote one, um, the voyage of Henry Pym, which is just pretty much just kind of a straight, I don't know, just kind of a pot boiler, uh, rough men at sea story until the very end, where there's this mysterious, almost like hollow earth thing happening, where <laughs> the ship happens upon some uh, marvelous opening in the ocean or in a in a and there's like a mysterious white-clad figure. So I don't know. I, I think it's a tenuous uh, association, but you know, I don't know. He's there in the through line. But where it really kicks off, and where I think the where I think everything actually really does gel, and I think a writer who deserves a lot of credit for the formation of a number of the major major threads in science fiction is Jules Verne. Um, and I had actually never. I only ever knew Jules Verne by cultural osmosis until (laughs) this project when I read from earth to the moon, and, um, I don't know, Pete, have you read much Vern or are you very familiar with them or,
2: um, you know, I honestly, I almost completely secondhand. Like I've, uh, now that I'm thinking <laughs> right. about it,
1: like, Vern. Like, we've, like we've all seen that Disney, you know, 20,000 Leagues under the sea movie, you know, I was just going to say that. Absolutely.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. But I, I would recommend going back and actually reading the guy we read from earth to the moon, which, um, is the story of a bunch of, just absolutely insane American artillery engineers who are upset about the end of the civil war, deciding to turn their injuries, their, their, uh, their energies into creating a gigantic cannon to fire a projectile at the moon. And it's for, for one thing, I think what Vern originates here and I, you know, and there are a lot of threads going into it, but I think what Vern at least was the first major author that originates this is he, he is in the hard science fiction mode um in that you will if you read that book you will learn a lot about just how many tons of steel it's going to take to do this because he actually like does the back of the envelope calculations he has an entire chapter that is the so this this gun club this association of artillery engineers writes a letter to the cambridge observatory asking for information about the moon in case they wanted to shoot at it um and the cambridge observatory writes back with this long detailed explanation about perihelion and zenith and, and you know, azimuth and all this kind of stuff and like the distance and all that. It's, a, it's an info dump. Jules Verne invented the hard science fiction info dump. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> but he was, so he was starting writing in the 1840s and I, I think kind of the other big name of the 19th century, guys, is H.G. Wells. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate just how much later Wells came onto the scene after Verne because H.G. Wells wasn't even born until Jules Verne was already a, a literary celebrity, because um, he was—you know—Verne was publishing in the eighteen, sorry, the eighteen sixties, and H.G. Wells wasn't born until eighteen sixty-six. Um, but he's also kind of the other big name of the nineteenth century, and he's a guy that we're yeah. going to be uh, taking—I uh, I, think—spending a lot of time with, just because I personally find him really fascinating. And but yeah, he does
2: slide day, into the twentieth. Uh, you, you, yeah, you know, yeah. I I know this is a literary podcast, but like, do you know about the whole Seder thing
1: with him? No, Seder like the like the wood creature or Seder like the Passover. Ritual? Like,
2: no, oh no, like sexual pathology. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I had no idea. Wells, oh, really? Yeah, oh, he was legendary for sleeping around. Uh, there was actually a a famous uh, spy who was caught in London. And one of, one of the things they were talking about is well, she had all of this involvement with with H. G. Wells and like how what was he getting from him? And she was like, "Oh, he just smells so
1: good. <laughs> <laughs> he has the kavorka. That's incredible. Um, wow. So Wells, see, Wells, you know, I knew there was a reason why I like this guy. Not that I necessarily like sexual pathology. Um, oh, sure. Just, he's he's a fascinating dude, though. In that." Um, he's he's kind of one of those figures where like anytime that you see someone complaining about science fiction getting political or whatever, like you just have to like roll your eyes because like Wells is one of those people who's called the father of science fiction you know not you know to to, to an extent of course you know as as we'll discover as we go on the project um, but what's really fascinating about Wells, I think is that he sort of takes the I mean, just how much more political can you get than like what are H.G. Wells' two most famous books? There's The Time Machine, which is the story about an extrapolated future where class distinction has grown so vast that they're two separate species. And there's The War of the Worlds, which is Wells inflicting a colonial subjugation on his own country like they have done across the world. (laughs) Like it's, you know, it's clearly like the, you know, and it's kind of what, you know, what they say about like, you know, science fiction is always about the present whenever it's written. It's, you know, it's, it's a it's a literature that uses the future in a way to explore the present. And I think Wells is, a, is absolutely a, uh, a a standard bearer for that. And then, and in the 19th century, I, I wanted to kind of look at some other authors outside of the kind of Vernon Wells, of course, the two titans there. So we're actually, our next episode, we're going to be reading um, Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy, which I wanted to take a look at because part of the part of the project that we're doing here is not necessarily like, so on the cannonball, we're reading like the the quote unquote great books of the Western canon. Um, but what I wanted to do with space of the place is get more of an idea of like the shape and development of the genre itself, rather than just like the agreed upon classics. And so I really wanted to take a look at a, a, a scientific utopia of the, of the late 19th century, which were everywhere. And I think this one's kind of the most famous one. Is that one you're very familiar with? Because I only know it by reputation.
2: Oh, I, I'm the exact same way. It's like I, man, did you get the wrong guy for this?
1: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're alright, man. <laughs> well that's, but that's what, you're exactly the kind of guy I want to talk to, though, because like you you like me have this this deep abiding love of the genre and like you're interested in genre history, but that's something I'm kind of discovering is that like all the stuff that I'm interested about in genre history I've only read about. I haven't read the thing itself. Sure. Uh, which is kind of that's that's the cannonball brand. You know, it's like, yeah, we all know that Don Quixote is a great classic, but like who's ever sat down and read that thing? Well, the answer is we did, and it's terrific. You should all read it. Um but yeah, so I'm I'm pretty excited about looking into that one. And, and I think what you see in the 19th century is a lot of the a lot of the threads that come together in science fiction began their lives as distinct forms. Uh, I guess speaking of war of the worlds, war of the worlds is actually a takeoff on a genre called the invasion novel. And this was a hugely popular genre between basically between like the Franco Prussian war and the Franco Prussian war two, which is better known as world war one, where you would have these writers imagining all sorts of scenarios of like Germany invading, England with uh with their mighty navy or like I think there are a few that are like more explicitly like yellow peril where there's like a a grand sino-japanese alliance that overwhelms the west and stuff like that but it's really like you can you can see how the you know the science fiction trope of the alien invasion is not only not only is that just all extrapolated from war of the worlds but war of the worlds itself is an example of a takeoff on this other genre so it's been pretty interesting to tease out um And I like how you mentioned that Wells kind of straddles that 19th century into the 20th century and into what I'm calling the pulp age or the golden age. Um, And the golden age of science fiction is itself a kind of, that's a precarious term. I guess, you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard the old joke that like, uh, oh, when was the golden age of science fiction? Well, it was when you were 13.
2: Oh, sure. Um,
1: Right. (laughs) Which there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. but typically that refers to the span of time with the kind of the first, because science fiction as a genre kind of went into a lull really around the turn of the century. Uh, Wells himself kind of turned away from it and started writing just straight up like uh, just kind of like domestic comedies almost. Yeah. <laughs> like really... Well,
2: did he had that Pacific adventure comedy about the island. Right. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it kind of fell back away and it, it ended up picking up steam again toward the end of the 1910s with uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs was – and whatever you may think of him as, as a writer, um, <laughs> I'm not exactly the biggest fan of his prose. You do have to give him credit that he sort of revived the idea of this kind of fantastical imaginative literature. And he was working on – of course, his most famous creation is probably Tarzan. Um, which is itself, you know, that's not science fiction exactly. Uh, but it does share that kind of an exotic locale. Wh- who, what is the nature of man? You know, you have Tarzan who was like raised in the in the forest and like there's the, you know, the tension between civilization and nature and where does man fit in all that place? But well, more strictly. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: Pete. I was just going to say it's also emblematic of the the biggest criticism people gave to the sci fi writing of the time. It's that it's all boys adventure
1: right exactly yeah you had uh what tom swift was another of the kind of the 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 torchbearers for science fiction and that really was just like a clever kid with his little inventions you know saving the day or whatever and it is it's pretty it's pretty juvenile it's pretty facile um and it is interesting how that that stereotype has such staying power because even today you know people will turn their nose up at the genre and be like oh yeah that whiz bang ray gun kid stuff and, you know, it's it's Edgar Rice Burroughs' fault. <laughs> but I will say, though, I, I do appreciate, you know, sort of another of his... Uh, he had like a Hollow Earth series called Lucidar. But one of his ones that sort of, again, kind of brought a lot of threads together was his uh, Barsoom series, or otherwise known as the Martian novels or John Carter of Mars. And these are pretty interesting works. They're They're not good but they're interesting in not just because it's sort of a you know preserves in amber this uh, notion you know along with War of the Worlds that Mars is clearly like a dry and desiccated place but it's also like maybe there's maybe it's inhabited so like in the John Carter stories there's a, uh, a, a Confederate veteran uh, finds himself sort of mystically transported to Mars which it turns out is sort of populated by these several intelligent people's uh you have the very human-like red martians who inhabit these kind of crumbling cities well past their prime you have the more savage green martians who are kind of the prototypical uh bug-eyed space monsters really they're these you know tall green with forearms and big tusks and so john carter has a by virtue of being raised on earth he has these powerful muscles so he can beat everybody up because it's in the, the low martian gravity which is kind of like one of the few nods to actual science that Burroughs bothers to give in a lot of those works. Um, But, uh, but it still, it it kind of kept the torch alive and that kind of there being an appetite for this imaginative literature long enough for Hugo Gernsback to make a splash in the 1920s. And let me tell you folks, you know, Hugo, even if you don't think you know, Hugo, because have you ever heard of a Hugo award-winning author Uh, that's, that's this Hugo. Um, and I've never read, he is best known as a publisher. He started up a magazine called amazing stories in 1926, which, um, I think interestingly and tellingly, it it was a mix of contemporary, like new stories people were writing that he was soliciting, but also about like half of its content would just be reprints of Edgar Allan Poe and HG Wells and Jules Verne. (laughs) So that there's, you know, not only did those guys have, in their in you know, in their times, well, I guess Wells was actually still writing at the time. But like, not only did those guys have an influence on the genre in their own times and their own active decades, but then also when the genre was kind of reconstituting itself, the main avenue of that was filling its pages with those stories. So you had a whole new generations of of, uh, of you know what would come to be called science fiction fans, you know, reading these same uh, Wells and Burns stories. And Hugo actually wrote some of his own which I've never I've never actually read uh, have you ever read much from like these old like pulp days or
2: it's it's been a while my uh, mostly what I remember is sort of a vibe of like don't forget to take your food pill like it's very it's not gonna help with that stereotype fair.
1: yeah 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 The kind of the world's fair attitude that's a really good I mean that's a really good point though like there's this kind of You had the kind of the trends of like, there's, I guess, planetary romance is a term that has been used to describe what Burroughs was doing with the kind of, you know, uh, our point of view character lands on a mysterious planet and faces fantastical foes. And yeah, Hugo was doing a more pedantic kind of thing that we might kind of associate, I guess we kind of associate with the, the Golden Age with its other major practitioner, other major editorial force. The, the lunatic fascist John W. Campbell Jr. <laughs> um, <laughs> who, was, who was a fascinating figure and did so much to shape this era that's called science fiction's golden age, because he had as his, his kind of editorial axe to grind was that he wanted his science fiction stories to he held them to a standard that Hugo, and, you know, I, I don't know that Hugo really did. Hugo gets credit for kicking it all off, and he was. Hugo was the inveterate fan. He was enthusiastic about all this stuff. He really, really liked ray guns and spaceships, you know. And John W. Campbell had this notion, more drawing on the Verne angle of, well, you know, we're going to – we're writing this genre that includes scientific extrapolation. You better cross your I's and dot your T's. I don't want you coming in here with some garbage that wouldn't fly in a chemistry class or something. Um which makes it doubly interesting that John W. Campbell was one of the very early proponents and big boosters of Dianetics and uh, <laughs> and Elron Hubbard's um, uh, emerging Scientology religion. Um, but he is a fascinating guy. He really—it it was his kind of editorial choices that shaped a lot of the. What we're finally getting, I think, some of the, the big names of mid-century yeah. American, at least you know, English-language science fiction, with uh, Isaac Asimov. Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, um, mm-hmm. the kind of the the, the big heavy hitters, E.E. Uh, uh, e. Doc Smith, who's less well-remembered today, but basically invented the kind of what we call the space opera story of like, there's a galaxy spanning human civilization and there's a hero who flies around solving problems in it. <laughs> you kind of made that. that's, that's another one that I, I actually, I, I have on the hit list to read on for uh, Space is the Place, because I've never read any Lensman novels, but I, I'm led to understand that they're very influential. Um, and, and that is
2: the nicest thing you can say about them. They're they're very influential. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I think, honestly, I'm, I'm getting the sense that a lot of the stuff I'm going to be uh, inflicting on Gigi is going to end up in that, in that category, but, you know, yeah. this is for my own enjoyment and edification here, man. Um, but it's really the... I do think it's fascinating. Like, so Campbell was, I mean, he was there for a long time. He was editor of astounding stories, which later became uh, analog from 1937 to 1971. And that's a huge span of time to be like the Dean of science fiction, you know, or, or what have you. Um, but I think it's, you know, it would be a little, it'd be a little misleading to say that this in the 1930s and forties, that was only sort of John W. Campbell's, um, Like insistence on you know dry science or whatever getting it right or whatever that was the only thing going on because there were still a lot of like there was still a lot of activity in that kind of planetary romance angle. There's an author, kind of one of the early uh, prominent female authors, C. L. Moore, wrote a uh, a series of connected short stories about a character called Northwest of Earth that was kind of a. It's almost kind of like a proto Han Solo. He was like he was like this, you know, gunslinging adventurer guy, kind of around the solar system. Um, and that's definitely worth checking out. And the the quality of writing is vastly better than Burroughs or a lot of the other planetary romance type guys. Um, but that's pretty interesting stuff. I, I would recommend you check out Seal Moore. And another one of my favorites from this era. Have you read any Olaf Stapleton? Pete.
2: Yes. Yeah. Last of Us yes. Men.
1: Yes, I adore. The last and first men. Stapledon is a writer who I, even with just like he, he wrote his two major ones that, that I really enjoy, uh First and Last Men and Star Maker. Um they're 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 published together a lot, and it makes sense that they are because they're very thematically similar. Um but they're just amazing works because he he packs like entire careers worth of science fictional concepts into a single novel. <laughs> like, it's really nuts if you read the Last and First Men, um, which purports to be it's basically kind of a history of humankind for the next billion years, uh, which goes through these several several evolutionary phases and changes in you know changes planets and whatnot to the extent that there are 18 versions of humankind that he goes over. And any one of those versions would be enough like meat on the bones for a novel to its own. It's a really weird book. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I guess what, – what, what, do you have any major takeaways from, uh, from Last and First Men or, or Stapleton in general? Like, um, Well, I
2: – yeah, how do I put this? When you're dealing with a lot of these guys – one of the things that really made science fiction launch from from pulp to golden age was technology and simply cheap paper. And so yeah, your initial yeah. rush of authors were – were people who could pump out a bunch of pages quickly they w- didn't necessarily know anything about science and they weren't necessarily any good but some of them were and Stapleton is one of those that I really hold out as somehow they managed to get somebody who could both pump out pages and know what he was talking about and that's Yeah it, yeah it it appealed to me
1: Yeah yeah he, he's a fascinating guy I uh, I always intend to uh, Every now and then I check on uh, Amazon or Abe Books to see if his books on uh, political philosophy are, you know, within my price range. But they're always like a little bit more than I'm willing to shell out for because <laughs> they're out of print. But uh, he, he's, he's a fascinating dude. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like that kind of like – and I think that, again, that sort of goes along with the the reputation that science fiction gained in those days of being of low quality – you know, it's rooted in the fact that you did have a kind of gold rush sentimentality of, you know, publishers cranking out these magazines. They just need copy, you know, just ter- turn in, you know, 5,000 words and call it a day and we'll print it. Uh, right. So you do get a ton of dross <laughs> with all that. But... Um, but I guess you do get like with say I, I think with Campbell especially he had a you know say what you will about his absolutely insane crank fascist opinions please like look into Campbell he is absolutely nutters, um, but he did he did have a kind of like mentorship idea so that when you had a standout like Heinlein for instance I you know that was one of his favorites sure he he would he would take the time to like. Engage with them on like you know like well here's some suggestions on this and I you know I really like you know you need to work on your writing on this you're a little weak on that and I think that helped shape some of the I don't know going going respectable that happened in the post war period and I think another and that is kind of the next big era after the uh, the pulps and golden age you have the post war after World War II and I think another aspect of what kind of lent science fiction a little more respectability in those days is that I mean you think about I don't know. Think about living through the Second World War, right? You start out the Second World War with you know propeller biplanes, and you end it with uh, you know jet aircraft and the atomic bomb. It must have felt like the future was rushing at you. It, and I, and I think that kind of broader. Sort of awareness of the pace of technological change, the the impact of technological uh, technological change. I think that lent a little more seriousness to the idea that there can be a literature which talks about man's relationship to his tools, um, and that's kind of where a lot of I think where a lot of post war science fiction goes. Like I mean, it's, it's, it's of course like you know you, you'd had some stories about apocalyptic annihilation before. Um, I think a few famous early examples, Jack London actually wrote a book where I believe it was like a plague and wiped out almost all of humanity. And so there's just like one guy wandering through the ruins of London. Um, But it's really in the post-war with the advent of atomic weapons that you start to get, uh, you know, some of the major subgenres of science fiction, like, say, the post-atomic apocalypse uh, and things like that. And the kind of – you start getting more – Uh, This is, of course, also the time of a massive investment in uh, science and technology education on the part of the federal government in the United States as part of the kind of Cold War with the Soviet Union, which was also, you know, pressing a lot of, you know, of course, with the the Soviet ideology was very much one of progress and industrialization itself. Right. Like the Soviet Union was built on this idea of we are building the future. So there was this massive investment in. A futurist oriented kind of uh, kind of thinking that the United States responded to with these investments in uh, in science and technology education and well you know in propagandizing you yep. know? And, and I think that sort of fed into a lot of uh, what was going on in, like the 50s in the post war era and you also sort of saw an increase in the quality of writing itself and a couple of editors I wanted to talk about with respect to that are.
0: My main man – I don't
1: know how you feel about him, but I – this guy's my absolute homeboy and I love him to death. Frederick Pohl. OK. Uh, sure. Yeah. So Fred Pohl was a guy who came up in the uh, – <laughs> he was actually in one of the first science fiction fandom organizations called the Futurians in the 1930s. Um, if you see any photos of uh, all those, I think Asimov was in there too, and they all look like the, the world's biggest dorks. It's absolutely adorable. But by the 1950s, he was a writer himself, and he was an editor at um, Galaxy Magazine, which was one of the, the the pulps had moved into what's called the digest size, and and that's where the surviving science fiction magazines are now. I think you know, I think Asimov's science fiction fantasy is still going, Analog is still going, and they're in what, what kind of looks like a paperback book size instead of like a big like. Comic book size, kind of, kind of format. And Galaxy was one of the first of those. And uh, another, another editor, which I actually didn't know anything about until I was doing a little research for, uh, you know, for the for the show uh, coming on here. Uh, a woman named Seal Goldsmith. Um, and you don't hear about a lot of women in science fiction in this era, partly because of just it was just such a male dominated field. Partly because you know, there, there's just the kind of like women being written out of things is pervasive <laughs> anyway. So even if there were women involved, you'll hear about them. And, well, and, and successful
2: successful female writers went by male pen names as well.
1: That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So yeah, so you could have like uh, James Tiptree Jr., for instance, yes. um, a little bit later. Like she had an entire career under the name James Tiptree. Uh, but Seal Goldsmith uh, was – an editor at Amazing Stories and Fantastic. Those were two that she basically over the course of the fifties and sixties was uh, editor at those two magazines, and she was the first person to publish some of my absolute favorites, like um, Ursula Le Guin was a mm-hmm. discovery by Seal Goldsmith, um, and there there are a number of other people, and I really want to know more about her because like she was publishing these authors like uh, Robert was another one who would really have a big influence on. Some of the vast changes coming to the genre later in that in the '60s and '70s, she was kind of the first one publishing them and discovering them. And but her the magazines that she was working for got bought out by Ziff Davis, and she got reassigned to be the editor of Modern Bride magazine. And and she remained editor of Modern Bride into the '90s. That's where she spent the rest of her career. <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating to think about. Like this woman had, she clearly had a keen eye for incredible science fiction, and you know she got <laughs> she went over to Modern Bride and just you know you know okay. But I hope um, it
2: paid well. I mean,
1: I would. I mean, she stayed there for thirty years, so I guess she was happy with it. Um, but uh, so in this post-war era, you get another kind of some more big names coming up, or like uh, say Ray Bradbury, which was kind of his big heyday. Um, I uh, I would just like to apologize to Pete and everyone. Um, it's landscaping day uh, <laughs> at my townhouse development, so you might be hearing some obnoxious two-stroke motors uh, fee- feebly and uh, futilely trying to blow leaves away. So I apologize for that. Um, in any case, we had like uh, you know Ray Bradbury, Robert Sheckley, um, Walter M. Miller Jr., uh, who wrote. My, I think easily my favorite post-apocalypse story Canticle for the Lebowitz Oh um, sure he, he, yeah, And that's very much in this kind of post-war mode of just kind of a very, if, if, if any of y'all out there have not read Canticle for the Lebowitz put down what you're doing and go read it now It is a beautiful, you know, beautifully written beautifully conceived science fiction novel of uh, you know utter and total societal collapse <laughs> in the wake of nuclear annihilation Um, but yeah, you have a lot of these writers who are leading into, uh, what's called the new wave of science fiction. And this sort of was picking up steam by the mid sixties. You had authors like, um, so you had some authors who had been even a little before that, like Alfred Bester, uh, so best known for the demolished man and the star is my destination. And those were first published in the fifties, but they were very, you could tell like a tide was turning against the Cambellian, you know, steely jawed engineer engineers, the solution mode of science fiction, because those are very raw and imaginative and and gutsy books. And the new wave was a term. um, And again, as with every literary genre definition, especially within science fiction, it's a very, very fuzzy term. Um, I don't know, Pete, if you could, like, what, what would be your definition of the new wave of science fiction <laughs> to put well, you on the spot? <laughs> honestly,
2: what, what I, the way I think of it as, is you've got the golden age and all the things that it represents. And the new wave is a series of authors pushing against that in completely different ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I guess they're united only in their kind of opposition to that, that form that came before them rather than the, it being a unified aesthetic itself.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if yeah. you look at Zelazny and then you look at Le Guin, I mean, they're the same species, but that's about all you can say. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so, so some of the names most associated with the uh, – I, I think it's also interesting, some of the transitional figures. I would, I would place Philip K. Dick and Robert Silverberg in the new wave, or at least like new wave adjacent, but sure. their, their careers kind of – they have a foot in both worlds because their careers began in, like, the Digest magazines in, like, the sort of the, the later Campbellian ascendancy. So, like, their earlier works are a little more kind of straightforward. But, of course, with Dick especially, after his psychotic break, yes. <laughs> he's, you know, he's, going off, he's going off in some very strange directions. Or, like, I think Robert Silverberg is one of my sort of favorite examples of this, though. Yeah. Because he began his career writing fairly, you know – I mean, still – I think he's, he's a very talented writer. Um, you know, he, he has his weak points, but I think he's a very talented writer. And he was one of those, he was one of those, like, he can turn out, he can turn out copy kind of guys. Um, sure. he has a, he has a huge corpus of work, but he sort of began his career in the kind of, you know, uh, spaceships and space travel, uh, you know, steely jawed guys solving problems era, but really I think got swept up in and kind of embraced the, the sort of the opening of, the opening of options that came with these other authors who were pushing back against that vision. So he really, he came up with a lot of like really cockamamie stuff in the seventies. Like, um, he had the, uh, he has this, uh, kind of similar to last and first men. Actually, he has a book called son of man, which was, I think first published in 71, you know, sometime early seventies, which is again, one of these, like a guy gets catapulted into the future and it's like a billion years from now and humanity still exists, but, in a myriad of different evolutionary forms to greater or lesser intentional extents. And uh, and also there's a lot of like weird sex happening, which, which is a hallmark of the new wave.
2: <laughs> so um, one thing I'd like to point out here, and it's something I think about a lot when we start dividing things into genre, is that mm-hmm. um, Robert Heinlein's most successful books happened during the new wave. But he's That's clearly right. yeah. a Golden Age author.
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I think you're right. And Heinlein, I think, is very much like uh, he's very much in that mold. Like he's clearly—I mean, he came up as you know a Campbell protege. Like yeah. he, he made his he made his name with uh, you know these very uh, not not rote or formulaic, I wouldn't think, but like he was very much in that mode of like heroic engineer solves the thing. But yeah, I mean, what's his, what's what's Robert Heinlein's most famous work? It's Stranger in a Strange Land the most like one of the most hippy dippy science fiction novels to ever exist right
2: absolutely
1: and it's um but, but a few a few other names kind of associated with this uh this movement um one of the big ones of course is michael moorcock and michael moorcock is one of those guys that i really really want to like more than i do um but I really enjoy him, and I've, I've read a lot of stuff. And I, I think he has a, a really keen aesthetic of his own that he that he you know kind of works out in a lot of his stuff. Um, he's kind of, he's most famous for the uh, Elric of Melnibone uh, fantasy series. Uh, he did a couple of like uh, he, he he did a lot of like I don't know. Well, it's kind of like that Burroughs planetary romance stuff, but kind of like what we might call today dark fantasy. Um, but his, his sort of his major role in the new Wave was that he was editor of a magazine called new worlds, which were, and this was a magazine that was publishing those authors who were challenging and pushing back like Zelazny, Delaney, you mentioned Le Guin, Mm -hmm. um, Joanna Russ, uh, JG Ballard, uh, and JG Ballard has since like, no one, he's not very associated with the science fiction genre or movement as much anymore today, but at the time he was like, he was just one of these weird new science fiction authors. Um, and, and Brian Aldiss, is another kind of big name of uh, of the new wave too. Oh, Thomas um, Deish.
2: I mean, yeah, you, you can yeah, yeah, get Deash. it down yeah. to a hard 12, you
1: know? Right. And uh, well, Harlan Ellison, I mean, what? Are, oh yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I forgot. Yeah. And uh, kind of one of the seminal publications in all this was a, an anthology called dangerous visions, which um, I guess if you ever, ever had to have like a canon of the new wave, that's uh, that's what it was an anthology of short stories from a lot of these authors. And what was kind of fascinating to me is reading about like – because a lot of those Golden Age guys were still – they were still there. They were still kicking. And what's what's especially interesting about the sort of relationship between the New Wave and the Golden Age is that this late 60s, early 70s, I mean, it, it, it saw the emergence of – you know, Arthur C. Clarke is nobody's idea of a New Waver. But 2001, A Space Odyssey was criticized for being New Wave claptrap by Lester Del Rey. <laughs> You know? yes. and like um, and you have also like the late 60s is when you have the arrival of what has to be like the most culturally impactful expression of the golden age sensibility was Star Trek um, so it's not really again that's kind of the problem with periodization <laughs> it's that yep. there is so much overlap and, and shifting and, and you know, sort of moving you know, uh, in between all these things that it's, you know, it can be hard to nail down but I think you're right that there was a – the best way to think about the new wave is that you had a, a ton of people who had their own ideas about what science fiction could be pushing back against that sort of Campbell Golden Age aesthetic. And as you said, you know they are really – that's what they had in common. <laughs> More, you know, Because yeah. you read a Le Guin and you read a uh, – or a J.G. Bauer. Like they're not <laughs> the same – they're not writing from the same place. They're just writing against the same place, I suppose.
2: Oh, exactly. Exactly. It's And I mean, it, it, it led to some interesting results. I mean, like, we're sort of in a similar time right now where we're mm-hmm. sort of post-cyberpunk, but nobody can really tell you what that means. And <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I like it. it. It means that people are, are making their own experience, experiments and doing different things. And it's a, it's a good time to be reading.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's taking chances. Um, and, and hey, you bring up cyberpunk. What a good segue into kind of the last <laughs> – the last agreed upon period, I think, in, in genre history. We, we were talking a little bit before we started recording that, like, I, I mentioned that I felt bad that I couldn't really think of anything past cyberpunk, which is, of course, you know, began 40 years ago as a kind of like, well, what's what's been a, a thing that's gelled since then? And, and you very helpfully informed me that, well, no one knows. <laughs> it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> but cyberpunk is a pretty – it's a fascinating phenomenon in itself – it began in the kind of late 70s. Um, it's prefigured a little bit by the author John Brunner, who uh, I would lump in with kind of these new wave guys. But he had mm-hmm. a, a novel called Shockwave Writer that came out in 1975, which I have not read myself. And I will probably make Gigi read for me for this project. Um, <laughs> but um, it's kind of prefigured a lot of the – and this was, of course, the rise of like – this was when you were getting your first uh, you know home computers. And they were still pretty rare this was not um, of course this was around the time that uh, you know Bill Gates famously went to one of the three high schools in the country that had a digital computer uh, program there um, which you know that, that's all that hard work and bootstraps for you. Um, but uh, but cyberpunk was a it was an aesthetic movement that emerged in the late 70s and early 80s. Their big names are uh, William Gibson, of course, Bruce Sterling, I think it's a little short shrift. Uh, he's not as famous as William Gibson, but he was there first. He kind of planted the flag a little earlier. And uh, another big name, Neal Stephenson. He came a little later in the 80s and, and early 90s. And the cyberpunk was a kind of. It's where science fiction, you know, I mean, computers and artificial intelligence had been uh, elements in science fiction for, I mean, ever, really. I mean, you have stories about automatons and. Artificial minds going way back, but cyberpunk was where kind of the rubber hit the road as more people were experiencing digital computing in their daily lives and the kind of changes that it wrought. And I think it was kind of an kind of an expression of not only the how digital computing might interface with ourselves, our minds, and our bodies, which is a major element of cyberpunk. Of course, there's always you know cybernetic augmentation is a big uh is a big part of uh the cyberpunk aesthetic but also that, that that's gotten kind of lost in the years since there was also a an element of suspicion and fear or at least anxiety over the the expansion of corporate power and the dominance of the corporate minded ideology that was picking up steam throughout the 70s This is of course the of course, a wonderfully loaded term, neoliberalism had uh, <laughs> began picking up steam by the mid seventies with this kind of emphasis on the private sector and privatization as the, as the not just the best means, but the only means of achieving human flourishing. Um, and the cyberpunk ties in a lot of anxiety about turning our control of our lives over to private for-profit actors. Um, and in my own uh, political uh, inclinations I think that is a good and right anxiety to have <laughs> but yeah but it, it, it was kind of um, in the cyberpunk you get a kind of like it's a very not dystopian exactly there are a lot of cyberpunk dystopias but I guess you, you get a real kind of final turn away from whatever kind of optimism was left over from the golden ages you know
2: yeah yeah I, I think the basic idea was that uh, individuals had no real expectation in cyberpunk that they were going to change the world or make it a better place but they could look out th- yeah. th- for themselves like in a small <laughs> level they could make their lives better and it's a grim way to look at the world but it's, it's appealing <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs>
1: yeah well exactly because it, it does appeal to because i mean you know think about you know I, the listeners at home like I don't think any of us feel that we can necessarily face up to the you know, the, the titanic forces that uh, create the social conditions around us but, you know, we're all of us looking to carve out our own little slice of happiness in it um, and I think you're right, I think that's what's really compelling about cyberpunk and what I think is you know, as state compelling we're talking about a, a literary movement or, and I guess, you know, media movement really that started 40 years ago, literally before, you know, before I was born um, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to have to out you Pete, for whatever age. I, um,
2: I I was alive, but <laughs>
1: okay, <laughs> but uh, but it's still like I mean, even just this last year, there was a of course a a big video game came out called Cyberpunk, just just titled the name of this literary movement, and this you know, and there's a lot to be said about how the this aesthetic and its and its ideas have been sanded down. the <laughs> <laughs> like the rough edges have really, really been sanded down, so that now, like when you say cyberpunk, you're mostly—I mean, you know—what what are people going to think of? They're going to think of like, oh, uh, brain implants and neon lights, I guess. Um, so, so I guess there's something to be said for it. Kind of, it's it's lost its teeth, but yeah. it is, it does have kind of an amazing staying power. Uh, and I guess that's simply because those those themes that you mentioned still resonate. You know, like we still—I mean, even more than in the 1980s, our lives are completely interpenetrated by. Digital computing. And so there's going to be that anxiety about what that means. And, you know, of course, the dread inward neoliberalism has, uh, you know, at least we're talking about it now. <laughs> but yeah. but like, we're living, we're living 40 years on into that experiment, you know, in politics and the political economy. Yeah.
2: So I guess, well, it's, you know, it stands to reason
1: that it's still uh, relevant to people.
2: One of the really ironic things about the cyberpunk movement is that it's completely artificial. Like Bruce Sterling and William Gibson and a couple of the other guys got together at a, at, at a conference in Texas and they're like, we need to launch a new sci-fi movement that'll draw attention to our work. Like it was incredibly
1: bloodless. Huh. Wow. That's. <laughs> I did not know that. I mean, I knew that they were in like I knew they were in correspondence with one another. You know, like a lot of these a lot of these authors are. But that's uh, boy, that's something I, I did not well, know. I mean, it was, yeah,
2: it's about as neoliberal as you get.
1: <laughs> it's astroturfed into existence. My God, <laughs> the cyberpunk itself is a cyberpunk uh, trope. It yeah, it kind of is. Of course, and, and what I mean, what 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 better way for like the. The you know, the postmodern age to create a genre for itself <laughs> that's incredible, man. Well, that kind of brings me up uh, that brings us up to like where I'm knowledgeable. And I really, I guess, in my own reading, I have not been very and I'm bad to do this. Like, I, I'm a I'm a uh a dyed in the wool record store guy, um, from back when there used to be record stores, sure, but um, so like you know, I, I for a while would like keep up with like new releases and stuff like that. But then starting sometime around like 2005, I became much more interested in like digging back into pop music. And uh, so I've never really been as good at keeping up with like what's going on now. It's been the same way with science fiction. Like I, you know, once I got this interest in genre history and I was very interested in like trying to find, I didn't want to miss out on any gems that I would enjoy. Right. And so I've been spending most of my reading time finding older stuff or digging through influences or pulling on threads. And so I really have no idea what the genre is up to today. So Pete, like, could you give me and our listeners, but mostly me, a taste of like, what's, what's the shape of the genre these days? Like how's, what what are kind of the broad trends? Where's, where's it headed? What's going on?
2: Okay. And uh, I, if, if you're listening and you have contrary opinions, I apologize. Right. in.
1: (laughs) I, I would I would urge you do not give us a one star review on iTunes. We would rather <laughs> we would we would rather just have a, a profanity laden email. Thank you very much
2: So um, earlier when we were talking about like pulped golden age, we talked about how one of the biggest influences on all of this happening was uh, like printing you get cheap paper you get more writers you to fill that that economic space and what's going on right now? arguably is the the traditional publishing houses are a lot having a lot of problems and it's incredibly easy to self-publish. Like you could just you yeah. could take your grocery list and go to Amazon right now and put it up. Boom, it's there. No problem. So right. as as a result, in some ways it's incredibly encouraging because the democratization of writing like Anybody's writing is out there right now. You've got access, yeah, yeah. but it's uh, there are quality control problems. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, I mean it was you know of course there's the famous um, yeah Theodore Sturgeon who actually I, I should have mentioned earlier as a, as a great great post war writer especially his short stories. I lo- I always I always plug Theodore Sturgeon. I love him. Um, but of course he has this famous Sturgeon's law. Um, which you know, uh, countering a you know a fellow at some uh, science fiction convention or what you know some other uh, you know event Q and A Q&A said, uh, Mister Sturgeon, wouldn't you agree that ninety percent of science fiction is crud? And of course, he retorts, Well, sure, but ninety percent of anything is crud. <laughs> and, and and now, of course, that's back when you know, where there was, you know, orders of magnitude, more quality control (laughs) at work.
2: Yeah. Well, it's the absence of those gatekeepers, like more and more, it's been like, like you, I like to try and like dig around and see what's going on in different genres. Mm -hmm. I start with the Nebula Awards now, because at least then there's some gatekeepers. And it's kind of a shame Mm -hmm. because it's the, the opportunity, uh, I never thought I needed publishing houses, but, like, I now know what they were doing by curating stuff,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, I have a, uh, I have a friend of mine who uh, works as a literary agent. And I've talked with her before about how, like, I, I thank you for falling on all these grenades. So that yes. you know, when you're actually <laughs> reviewing these pitches, like, so that we don't have to, you know, we don't have to sort through them. Like, you're doing that for us professionally. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 fascinating. Like a kind of, um, yeah, I, I guess th- that's a good idea to kind of start with the, you know, the 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 awards like the the Nebula or I guess or some you know there's Hugo of course. Um, but uh, does do, does Locust put out? Do they have an award? Or I guess they probably have like a year end best of or something.
2: I think they do. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah.
1: So that might be that might be a place for me to start to get you know get my sea legs back because I am very interested. Like I've I've really. I, I went through a bit of a phase in college, like we all do, where I believed the propaganda and I believed that the science fiction stuff was kid stuff, you know, so I put it to one side. Um, but beginning about 10 years ago, I waited, I found myself wading back into the genre and just getting so much more out of it. Um, and, and actually, the I can't believe I didn't mention him here. Um, I've, I've done a whole special episode on, though, but uh, when I found Gene Wolfe that oh, sure. really unlocked that unlocked a lot of passion in me for like for, for the genre and what it can do and what it can be um and so it's been it's been a, a, a great project to me in these last few years of sort of getting reacquainted and finding stuff that i missed and you know of course i realized like in my you know in my zeal to find the things that i missed from the past i'm missing all the cool things that are going on now so uh <laughs> yeah yeah i'll definitely be shaking you know i'm start i'm gonna start with those nebula awards and uh and see what i can see what i can find there All right. Well, thank you so much, Pete. This has been a terrific conversation, man. Oh, Um, I've had a good time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I hope uh, listeners at home, I I hope this was all intelligible to y'all. I think it it got to a couple of real heads talking to each other here. But uh, (laughs) like I said, I'm an inveterate record store guy and I I really hate the, the idea that I might be alienating. But really, if you're listening to a special, if you're listening to a literature podcast special series on science fiction, you're probably on our wavelength. So I don't feel too bad about it. Um, but yeah, I hope this gives uh, everybody a grounding in um, kind of the shape of the genre history, how we're going to be exploring it. Some names are going to crop up again. And, um, and yeah, and thanks again, Pete. And everybody at home, please listen to Podside Picnic. It is an absolute treat. Uh, Pete and Connor are two of just the smartest uh, commentators on the literature you could uh, ever hope to find. It's a, it's a delightful show.
2: Well, thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure to be
1: here, man. <laughs> I appreciate it alright well, uh, we'll talk to you later and uh, goodbye everybody in Radio Land